Welcome to the Fiber for Breakfast podcast, a series that discusses fiber as the critical infrastructure for today's growing broadband needs. Listen in as Gary Bolton, CEO and President of the Fiber Broadband Association, speaks with industry thought leaders and experts about connectivity issues and the impact on the remote workplace. I hope you enjoy today's discussion, which will start momentarily. And remember to subscribe and like this podcast on your favorite platform. This week's Fiber for Breakfast brought to you by our platinum sponsor, Wesco. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Fiber Broadband Association's Fiber for Breakfast. We're now in our seventh episode of 2023. Before I kick off, I'd like to thank Wesco, our platinum sponsor of Fiber for Breakfast, and our gold sponsors, Nokia and Vetro. You know, last week we held our first regional Fiber Connect workshop in Raleigh, North Carolina on Tuesday, February 7th to a standing room only crowd as we had record attendance. Now I went back and checked and our attendance has broken a record by at least 50 people for every regional event since Providence last spring. That's a record attendance in Colorado and then another record in Columbus and then a new record again in Raleigh last week. So the t- key takeaway here is to register early because you know, unfortunately we had to turn away about 50 or more people that we just couldn't have room for. Um, so register early. Our next regional Fiber Connect workshop is on April 6th in Oklahoma City. This is gonna be a very special event as it's gonna put a strong focus on tribal broadband. So you're not gonna wanna miss that. You know, yesterday was an interesting day on the Hill with Gigi Soames' third Senate confirmation hearing as she perseveres in her quest to fill the fifth commissioner seat at the FCC. You know, Gigi was first nominated 15 months ago and failed to be confirmed in the last Congress. You know, President Biden renominated Gigi at the beginning of the year as the Democrats had picked up a seat in the midterm elections, which they had hoped would tip the scales. But despite it being Valentine's Day, you know, love was definitely not in the air. And it's been two years since the Biden administration's been in office, and we're still at a 2-2 deadlock across party lines at the FCC. So it's really important that we fill this fifth vacancy to enable the FCC to be effective. You know, on the NTIB front, OMB proposed guidance on Build America, Buy America that is raising more questions than answers. As we heard in President Biden's State of the Union address, the administration is looking for fiber for the $42 billion NTIB broadband infrastructure program to be made in the U.S. in an effort to encourage investment in U.S. fiber and cabling plants and more U.S. jobs. As with most things, the devil's in the details. So if you're interested in learning um, more about these key topics related to the NTIB program. My guest this afternoon on Where's the Funding is Evan Feynman, the director of the NTIB program. So where the funding, a bead deep dive will air today at 3 p.m. Eastern. I'll be live on broadband.io. And you can register at fiberbroadband.org forward slash webinars. That brings us to today's session with Josh Snowhorn, the CEO of Quantum Loophole to discuss fiber to the hyperscale data centers, lessons learned. You know, last week on Five for Breakfast, we heard from Mark, Mark Boxer from OFS and our FBA board member and chair of our education committee, and Debbie Kish, our vice president of workforce development on scaling broadband workforce development for BEAD and beyond. You know, workforce development is an eligible expense for the NTI BEAD funding and critical to getting all this fiber deployed. For today's Fiber for Breakfast session, we'll be speaking with Josh Snowhorn, the CEO of Quantum Loophole, to discuss Fiber 2 hyperscale data centers, lessons learned. 
It's going to be an extremely interesting session given the massive fiber loop that's been deployed to extend the Northern Virginia internet ecosystem. You know, Josh Snowhorn, the founder and CEO of Quantum Loop, he values approachability, accessibility, collaboration, innovation, and growth. These qualities guided Josh's leadership in the interconnection industry for over the last 20 years and, and in building over $10 billion of value along the way. He has pretty much seen and done it all through key foundings and executive positions at Terramark, Verizon, Cincinnati Bell, and Cyrus One. Josh founded the Global Peering Forum, the annual meeting for the Internet Interconnection and Peering Community, where he serves as uh, on the board of directors. Josh serves on the advisory board of Telecent, the finest automated um, interconnection machine on the planet. He's an avid speaker at conferences globally, including networking, data centers, real estate, edge networking, and quantum computing. With all that, welcome, Josh. And for our audience, please type in your questions as we go, and we'll work them into the Q&A. So let's get things started, and I'll turn things over to Josh. Hi, Gary. Thank you. I appreciate that. So um, thank you for having me, um, and, and I'm grateful to be able to present Quantum Loophole and what we're doing for uh, the industry. Um, Quantum Loophole is, is quite unique in that we're, we're building a data center campus uh, to support hyperscale infrastructure, but we actually don't build data centers. We are purely land, energy, water, and more, most importantly on this call, fiber optics. Um, what we recognize is that the, the hub of infrastructure in the Northern Virginia marketplace is completely constrained. Uh, there's very little land left in, in, in this core, and a lot of it's starting to stretch out to the south, down to Manassas. You can see where QTS and Compass are building their big campus if that gets approved, and other areas down here. But we're also seeing a lot of power constraints. Um, and we, we recognize that if we could find a campus that would be able to support mass scale infrastructure, we could, we could create something along the lines of a master plan community. One of the big keys to that was being able to interconnect it with the biggest fiber ring um, ever constructed. Uh, this is just the very bottom tip of our ring, uh, which interconnects uh, Maryland down to the Ashburn edge or the Ashburn mesh, as we like to call it. Um, each of these squares that I'm highlighting actually represents three vaults. And the reason for that is the scale of what we're doing is so big. We're actually putting in a ring that carries 34 two-inch ducts. And inside of that, the entire system is able to accommodate 6912 fiber trunks. Um, and I can hold that up if you can see my image. I'm not sure if my camera's showing up, but um, the the uh, the scale of that is quite unrivaled. We can actually do 235,000 strands of fiber in the system. The first thing we had to do, and one of the most important pieces, was crossing the Potomac River. And if anybody in this industry has done river crossings, they know exactly how exceedingly difficult it is. Uh, that begins with a 12-inch pilot hole. Uh, to go down through the boring. Um, our boring in this case is 3,900 feet long and goes 91 feet below the bedrock of the Potomac River. Uh, and that was really the standards we had to achieve to meet approval from the Army Corps of Engineers to cross the Potomac. They were quite sensitive. Um, we do a 24-inch back reaming and then a 36-inch back reaming to make the hole large enough. And what we pull in through that sleeve is an HTPE conduit that's actually 26 inches in diameter. And this is actually our laydown yard in uh, Maryland. It goes on for uh, quite an extended distance. Um, this first sleeve and the first set of 34 ducts has already been pulled through and has been completed. Our second crossing across the Potomac goes up into the northern area in between Leesburg and Point of Rocks. And that one should be completed by the end of this month. It's actually a 24-hour day operation right now. The entire system 
is 43 miles in length, so about 21 half miles on each side, and allows us the lowest latency possible to be able to reach the marketplace down to the south where other carriers can interconnect to us. It's very important to understand that we're a wholesaler to the wholesalers, so when we provide services, we're just simply trying to support carrier infrastructure and not compete with anybody, but support mass scale, um, hyperscale needs and requirements. And what that means is being able to support a campus that is the biggest in the world for data centers. It's 2,164 acres. Um, this site was a former Alcoa aluminum smelter. If I turn on time lapse and sort of slide back in time, this is what it used to look like. Alcoa used to own the smelter. They had a huge amount of electricity feeding the site from the Daub substation to the south, which is on First Energy's transmission system. We're actually not fed by Dominion in any way. And um, over the years, uh, Alcoa decided they were going to tear down the smelter and retire it. And it, the site basically looks like this today. It's a greenfield site now. Um, and what we did is we then parcelized the site and sell this to companies who want to build data centers and infrastructure. Um, Aligned has purchased this parcel here and uh, other parcels on the campus, including all of these are already under contract. Um, we can do anywhere between 14 and 28 million square feet of data center space on the campus, depending on density, if you go one or two stories. And that's uh, because we have 1,500 acres of light or general industrial land that's entitled for the, for the property. We have over 2,000 megawatts of, of detailed load study power coming from First Energy to support the campus. And that allows us to, of course, uh, build big data centers, empower all of those servers, switches, routers, and everything else and then interconnect those into the internet ecosystem. On the campus, we're actually building two large network centers. This is Network Center 1 and Network Center 2. Um, these network centers are designed to basically be multi-acre meet-me rooms to enable interconnection between all the parties on the campus or externally. Um, on the campus itself are massive duct bank systems to be able to interconnect every single parcel back to those network centers. In some cases, for example, between Network Center 1 and Network Center 2, there are up to 70 conduits interconnecting those two sites together, um, allowing really for millions of strands counts of fiber to be able to interconnect and tie everybody together. Um, the way the system looks, it is actually from a from an outside plant perspective, it's a it's a, a massively banded together system. These this represents 30 of the ducts, and we've buried this five feet down, um, and that's to meet the most stringent government standards for GovCloud work. So any agency work or any, any DOD work, or anything else that anybody needs to do, it's actually supported by the standards of the burial depth that we put in place. We're also putting in Telesend cross-connect machines. Um, these are really outstanding for automation. A Telesend machine allows you to take 1,006 fibers in the back and 1,006 fibers coming out of the front with a robot arm that goes up and down and side to side that latches and interconnects those fibers. It's essentially replacing a, a network center or knock or meet me room technician who is going out to run into a patch and, and interconnect somebody. And that, the time is really the big factor there and the reliability. A normal cross-connect might take 24 hours to many days to interconnect. This machine, when a customer orders it, and we actually don't touch it at this point, the customer does all the ordering, can do a cross-connect in two minutes. Uh, the, the advantage here is if you had a thousand cross connects, it's, it's roughly 2,000 minutes to be able to enable all those as the machine is working and all those, all those jobs are batched. So much more rapidly than any human being can do it. But the biggest advantage as well beyond that is the ability to interconnect across multiple data centers. If you had 20 data centers with 20 different Telesent machines inside of them, 
you could interconnect those together all at the same time and do a cross connect across all 20 buildings simultaneously in two minutes as a built-in OTDR to test and everything else required. Imagine the amount of truck rolls saved and the time saved to, do, to put an interconnection. No live electronics, it's simply a patch, but uh, it gives us a distinct advantage. Um, carriers that are actually on the campus already are, are Verizon, Zao, AT&T, Sprint, Lumen, Comcast, Segra, UFT, and Atlantic Online. And these are some of the folks down below, DF&I, Summit, Fiberlight, and Crown who are intending to come up. Um, just understanding kind of the scale of the of the amount of conduits coming. This is a picture of my butt, if anybody cares. But this is uh, these are the sleeves and the scale that actually went under the river to understand uh, how large it is and what we're putting together. And this is the amount of fibers sitting inside a 6912 trunk. So each of these units are 144 fibers. You can imagine the amount of splicing that's going to take place as we put this in. Um, the spools alone weigh somewhere in the in the in the range of 13,000 pounds for every single um, 6912 fiber trunk spool that we're actually pulling in. So incredibly heavy and dense. This is really the next generation of hyperscale one-to-one -one optics and, and interconnection. So we're very proud of this and, and what we're putting together and, and uh, creating the biggest data center campus in the world. Yeah, well, Josh, um, first of all, this is absolutely amazing um, and <laughs> impressive. So let's just start with, I'm trying to picture splicing <laughs> 6,912 fiber trunks. Um, so how long is it, how do you splice that? So you're using ribbons and what, can you talk a little bit, break it down a little bit? It is ribbon. Um, if I can hold this up as close as I can get to the camera, you can see internally, these are, this is a 6912, this is Corning Rocket ribbon. Um, and you can see more than anything, the bend radius, this thing doesn't move. So right. this huge cable, uh, it, it's very difficult to build this in a, in a you know, in our ring is a medium haul 43 mile ring. Um, so accommodating the bend radius is one of the biggest thing we had to deal with. Um, the splicing is gonna be absolutely insane. Uh, if you imagine 34 ducts filled with this and 235,000 strands of fiber, um, every single splice point is gonna be weeks of work um, to get those enabled and in place. What, what'll be, it really behooves folks to then put in the longest cables they can to minimize your amount of splice points and of course minimize your loss. Um, so it'll be quite interesting to see what everybody comes up, up with and how they put that in. Um, the, the, the vaulting is also gonna be uh, interesting. So um, each of these are, each of these vaults, as I said, each of these squares represents three vaults. So um, you can look how we've really densed it up down along the edge of the Ashburn mesh. So each of these vaults being three vaults and laying out a, a number of conduits, it's going to be uh, quite full as we start to, as we start to do all that splicing. So it'll be it'll be it'll be it'll be you know there's going to be some very busy splicers and uh, we're going to support the entire industry for a number of years, I bet. So can you talk about so you have these vaults and then you have these different color conduits? Can you kind of get into how do you manage all this fiber and know where things go? Sure. We we have uh, uh, in our system, we have uh, orange, blue and black, and those just represent going into a singular vault. Um, the uh, uh, if somebody did want to contract for, say, 10 um, or or something along those lines or 12 conduits that might go into a specific vault, they could take the entire thing and have their own isolated, secured private vault. Otherwise, it's going to be a shared vault. Um, the O&M is going to be done completely by quantum loophole contractors. We can't allow anybody else into the vaults just because of the variety of, the, first of all, the number of fibers going in and anything that has to do with GovCloud uh, requires incredible security. So we'll be doing all that work for years and years to come. Yeah, so we have a lot of questions coming in on about the labor costs 
for splicing, it must be fairly significant. I mean, how does that be, compare with the material costs? Labor costs are going to be significant. Um, uh, I think that's more of the initial installation, uh, more than anything. We, we're from a from a material cost perspective, um, the only fiber that we're putting in is a single trunk of fiber. So we're not in the business really of of being a carrier. We're just kind of planting a seed and supporting somebody who might want fiber right away. So that's why we put that in place. Um, but uh, uh, and we've acquired Corning Rocket Ribbon to meet GovCloud standards. Um, it's the only thing certified for uh, any kind of any kind of work like that. So in splicing, you would just uh, basically splice every ribbon and go ribbon by ribbon by ribbon. To get to your yep, every uh, ribbon and we'll yeah we'll close out the entire well, ring and terminate into the network centers um, we are not putting any fibers in on campus onto our uh, campus network um, which which really en uh, encompasses miles yeah, to understand the campus it's three and a half square miles in size uh, bigger than the city of london so when we're laying out our conduit on campus itself it's like building an entire city's infrastructure in a, in a metro network so can you talk a little bit about um, latency? You said, said super low latency, but you're 43 miles in length. So what, what kind of latency are you? Uh, do you have an SLA on that or what? how do you report on latency? Well, we're not a carrier, so we wouldn't really have an SLA. Um, it's, it's kind of simple to calculate from a mileage perspective. So we have, um, we, we have a 43 mile ring. Round trip time is under a millisecond of latency. Um, and that's in, when we when we calculate that, that's actually calculating it all the way to Equinix, a filigree court. But you can notice that we actually don't reach Equinix. So the round trip time is even shorter just at the edge of our network. Um, and then in, in that case, you'd pick up other providers like Summit and Fiberlight and Zayo and anybody else who might have dark fiber in the region and carry back to the to the Equinix core. Um, you know, the, this is certainly the largest interconnection point of the internet. And but I I have no intention of trying to go crazy and build fiber into this. This is this is mayhem in here. Can you talk a little about? Um, I mean, the cross connect, uh, this telecent cross connect. I mean, that sounds absolutely um, beyond this world. I mean, so can you explain a little bit about? I mean, if you're looking at 235,000 strands of fiber and you're connecting across multiple buildings and multiple, I mean. So how does that all work? Sure, the Telecent machine, each machine takes a thousand and six fibers into the back. Let me go up to the imagery of it. Um, and this, the, what you're seeing here is an is a entire container loaded up with machines, just to give you an idea of scale. Each one of these, where my cursor is going, is a, is, is a single Telecent machine. Um, so one, once it's patched into the back of that, and then the, the alternative interconnecting party is patched to the front, then you've got an outside plant to inside plant or uh, campus-wide kind of interconnection. Where it starts to get expensive and complex is if you start cascading and interconnecting uh, an any-to-any -any interconnection between machines across the entire campus. Um, we will have hundreds of these machines in place, by far and away exceeding the actual one-to-one 235,000 strand count fully loaded up system. Uh, to be able to interconnect folks. Um, I, I do anticipate that some people will go the path of traditional patches just because they're, they're, uh, uh, they have engineering religion and that's how they like to do it. But from the perspective of automation and rapidity, this is what we would prefer to do and, and put in place. Wow, it's really impressive. So can we talk about power for a second? You know, we got a lot of questions here about, you know, how much <laughs> power these data centers are consuming. And, you know, um, so you mentioned uh, 2,000 megawatts. I have to think that power is kind of top of mind for everybody, especially as these data centers continue to grow. 
Yeah, we we have over 2,000 megawatts. Um, it's 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 we we think that we'll be closer to 2.4 gigawatts or 2,400 megawatts of power, and we have a detailed load study proving that out from um, First Energy, and that'll come along in tranches. What we're putting in place in our very first substation is 1,000 MVA substations, roughly 1,080 megawatts, to be able to deliver to customers. Um, the first customer going in place who's already closed on their land is aligned. Um, this is a publicly disclosed uh, footprint that they've provided um, in, in press releases for the data centers that they're putting on the campus. And inside of that, they, they originally said 192 megawatts. I believe it's almost 300 megawatts that they intend to put just on that one parcel. Um, so the world of, of power is, is an incredibly limiting factor for folks right now in the industry. Um, the data centers are getting denser and denser and denser. We're bumping up against the laws of, of fluid dynamics for the ability to move air uh, around, and, and that's going to start to invite things like liquid cooling and power densities that could go as high as 10x what you might see today. So imagine if that's the case, this could be a 3,000 megawatt parcel. Um, so it, it's quite wild to think of the future of power and where things are going to be moving along. Um, you also have goals of reaching ESG targets, um, uh, green power. Um, you, we're on transmission systems. Uh, First Energy is 24,000 miles of primarily just transmission and distribution by Potomac Edison. Um, that allows companies to acquire power purchase agreements for solar and wind and nuclear and, and hydro and anything else that can uh, acquire that meets their ESG targets so we can actually have green data centers. Where you start to see issues, Gary, is down to the south. Um, Dominion announced, and to really a lot of people's surprise, that they have no more power until 2026. Everything in the pink area is actually the area that's constrained. They've been able to carve out um, 50, 60 megawatt tranches for folks here and there, but it's it's been quite limited. That first new transmission line coming in in 2026 is probably going to be going to Digital Realty's campus, the Airport Westernlands campus um, down here. It's about a 424-acre campus. Um, and But that single line coming in is, let's call it an average of 1,250 megawatts. You can do anywhere from 1,000 to 1,500 megawatts on a 500 kV line, depending on how far the power produced has to travel. Um, the next power line doesn't come in until 2029. There is enough demand requests already in place in Loudoun County with existing land and data centers being built to gobble up all of that capacity already. And that's where you're starting to see the change of data centers pushing farther south to Prince William County and up to Frederick County in Maryland where we are. Um, so power is quite a limiting factor. So with all this power, cooling is king. And you said you guys do water management. So I assume that's gray water management and cooling or how's that working? We're very unique in that we have um, 7 million gallons of gray water and gray water that's actually forecasted to grow. That's treated sewage water coming from the city of Frederick. That transits directly by our campus and goes into the Potomac. The actual outfall for that is located right here. Um, so we're, we're able to capture that gray water and utilize that for cooling services to be able to provide chilled water with reused um, water. So we have that sustainability factor of brownfield land being reclamated, existing transmission lines being reclamated, and all of the gray water come by our campus being reclamated. Um, where you're gonna start to see changes on cooling is beyond chilled water and airflow systems are dielectric centralized um, cooling systems. And we'll be able to uh, build a centralized cooling plant using, using our Q water platform in this area of the campus and distribute that with underground piping we have throughout the campus 
uh, provide dielectric uh, liquid cooling services, really the future of where data center cooling is going. So you guys have quantum in your name. I see quantum on all your charts. Um, is there any quantum networking going on in this area or do you see that as a future? Or? Well, there's quantum networking and quantum computing are two completely different things. So uh, uh, the we do have a lot of folks discussing quantum computing with us. Um, I, just a tickle with our name has absolutely nothing to do with data centers or anything else. It's just quantum, quantum loophole is just a scientific phrase uh, about the loopholes improving the quantum entanglement actually exists. Uh, that, that loophole's been closed, but that's our name. Um, the, we do have several quantum computing platforms and discussions with us coming to the campus, and I think there'll be a lot more. Quantum networking is going to be interesting. You, uh, you wouldn't even need fiber anymore if that actually becomes true. We'll be able to entangle qubits and, and photons you know, across the universe instantly. So we'll see if that, we'll see if that ever takes hold. I don't know. All the quantum physicists I talk to say we're going to be relying on fiber for a long time, but uh, you know, as long as they start working on their um, quantum repeaters, so um, that's mm -hmm. going to be a little bit of a challenge. But um, can you talk a little bit about? So, but first of all, I want like the resiliency is amazing. So you're talking about having 30 ducks buried five feet deep, um, and so that is so weather, you know, nuclear attacks, whatever. I mean, so what what kind of resilient? I mean, these data centers have. Are going to be critical to our nation right so that's why Absolutely. you're so deep um the fiber system itself by being five feet deep it is designed to withstand um uh, any emp incident um so, so specifically exceeding the dod standards to support that um from a resiliency perspective because it's not only buried deep but it's a it's a complete ring uh, obviously extremely expensive to build um, we have 34 ducts in place and and that ring architecture allows it to be completely protected so if you did have the errant backhoe who decided to take out uh, 34 ducks that are fully loaded and all the splicers come a running to fix it you have a completely resilient path um, but in addition um, outside of just the q loop path itself we have eight separate carriers that are coming into the campus including the original AT&T long lines that was the original Mobile nuclear survival system. Uh, that system that went straight through our campus, 16 foot wide easement with, uh, with uh, seismically isolated racks to carry the original coax inside of it. Uh, it was quite, quite interesting. That's of course now fiber, um, but we, we have a lot of outside plant carriers coming to the facility and diverse paths going down 270 out Point of Rocks Bridge and then a long haul going to New York and uh, Chicago um, via these splice points up here. So it's a it's a heavily connected site that offers some diversity from a northern perspective from the Ashburn ecosystem. Yeah, I mean it sounds pretty complex and amazing. So with all this complexity, you know, how are your fiber circuits into and within the Q loop uh, provision and monitored? You have a system to track and visualize all this. Sure, the, that, that's really via the Telesense system and um, our CRM system. We're just getting ready to execute a deal with Karma, which a lot of data centers use to um, handle their cross connects and power and provisioning. And they have an API already tied into the Telesense system. So most of this will be portal based um, because of the automation. The, a client will log in. They'll be able to see a map of their cross connects if they have an outage. They, they can isolate that fiber with the machine by enabling a test. The machine will put it into an OTTR, run the test and find out where the fault is. If it's not there, then they can start to narrow it down. 
So um, you know, our, our business is really, our goal is really not to do or very little coming out of vert vertically out of the ground. The network centers are about it. Um, all of the rest of our infrastructure is horizontal and you know buried. That includes sewage, uh, potable and non-potable water, underground power infrastructure. Uh, the biggest thing obviously coming out of the ground is the substations, which are gigantic. Um, we'll, we'll also have from an energy perspective, uh, not to digress from interconnection, but a, a large 100-hour battery farm and um, hydrogen electrolyzers to be able to produce hydrogen fuel as backup instead of diesel, things like that for sustainability. But uh, um, the automation side is is key here. We're we're not a big company when it comes to personnel. We're using the best in class contractors and the best in class technologies going forward. Well, Josh, I mean this is absolutely amazing, and the scale of what you're doing is phenomenal. So thanks for sharing your insights and expertise, and how to connect these hyperscale data centers with fiber. Um, I love this the, the size of those fibers; they're amazing. Um, but anyway, thanks for joining us. And thanks to everybody for joining us and look forward to getting back together next week. We're going to be discussing the Bay into Bay High with Brad Moline, the president and CEO of Allo Communications, as he discusses how fiber is changing the lives of the youth in Lincoln, Nebraska. So thanks for joining. Thanks, Josh. And we'll see you guys next Wednesday.